The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, I know that Gil recently did a talk on about Ferguson and the incidents and his understanding of it. And so I'd like to bring a different perspective. And I'd like to look at it through the wings of compassion and wisdom, but also talk about how suffering is part of that and that there's also an end to suffering. And even though it sounds like, it's like a river, right? The rain. <laughs> so it's going to flow. But the, there's, a, there's a trajectory here. Um, so all of you are aware of the recent incidents and the recent events. And it continues on. So in some ways, there's so much suffering around that. And so much confusion because some of it makes sense and then some of it doesn't. So there is the paradox, the paradox of the suffering and then the potential that it could change and change the world and change people's ideas and beliefs. But there's a price to pay for that and that price can be pretty high. And it's not something we're used to in this country. And therein lies the suffering. There's also the possibility of experiencing joy in the midst of that suffering. Like the sun on your face and the warmth of the sun or the listening to the rain. And at the same time, we sit with what's unknown or what's unfamiliar or how it feels uncomfortable. And who do you talk to? And what do you say? And how do you make sense of the world right now? And how do you make sense of it within yourself? And that could be filled with suffering as well. It could be filled with sorrow. It could be filled with frustration. It's not knowing or the sense of feeling helpless. Well, can allow you or may allow you to sit with the unknown or the uncomfortability of not knowing. And that in itself can be considered suffering. It's how you live with it and how you interpret it. As I've watched over the, the weeks and months, I've, I'm not surprised at the verdict. I'm not surprised at the outcome. And I'm not surprised at the response of many people. I'm just tired. I'm tired of it. I would like to see the world a different place and a better place. And that is suffering. And that's the longing for something to be different than what it is. And being attached to wanting it to be different. Or the sense of feeling indifferent because... I don't want to know about what's going on. I don't want to know if it impacts my life or how it impacts my life. And that can be considered suffering. None of us are exempt. Even if you're confused, you're not exempt. Because we all 
have experienced some form of suffering, some form of rage or helplessness. And we may not choose to do it the way some of what's been happening in the way it's been happening in terms of some of the violence and the looting. But there is a place in us that can be very rageful. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's suffering. It means sitting with what does that mean? And how do I hold it? And what can I do with that? And that's where I think kindness can come in. And kindness can be an entryway into a sense of liberation. Because in the midst of all of that, there can be a place of ease. And that seems like, what? That seems odd to say, how can I have some ease and even glimpse of joy when there's so much suffering around me, as well as what's going on in my own life? And it's possible. It's really possible. And I know you're familiar with this poem, but I wanted to bring it in because I think it's really relevant. And it's called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Ni. I hope I'm not messing up her name. And I'm going to read the whole thing because it weaves in holding the complexity of sorrow and suffering and kindness and how kindness can be a, a, a balm to how we hold and sit with our own pain and the suffering of the world. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. Just think about recent events for those lives that have lost. They're gone forever. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. And with the whole situation in Ferguson, he was, a, he was a young man. He was big, but he was still a young man. He was a child, 16-year-old. What if you lost someone like that? It, and it doesn't make sense. That suffering is so great. That sorrow is so deep. So before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then... It is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes in the morning and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, 
It is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So there is suffering. There's a cause to suffering. There's an end to suffering. And sometimes in the midst of all of the, the experiences of sadness or confusion, how do we hold that? How do we hold it? How do we understand it? How do we understand the impact of racism in your life? I understand it in my life, but how do you understand it in yours? Do you even know it impacts you? I teach uh, at a private high school and I teach mindfulness. And one of the young men, uh, he told his mom when he went home that he feels bad for feeling because he's white. That's really sad. That is really sad. And then the young African-American male who's at the school, there's a few of them, they're not going to open their mouth. They're not going to talk about how they feel express what's going on it's suicidal it's not safe how do we hold the complexities of those extremes and make room for them how do we bring some sense of ease and some sense of a little kindness with how we hold our own pain and hold the pain of others there are no easy answers for what's going on None. There are signs that say black lives matter or when all life matters, black lives matter. And it's more than just these incidents. It's about the suffering of the world. It's about justice for all the suffering in the world. And it's a catalyst that's bringing people's attention to having conversations, some hard conversations, painful conversations. And in the midst of that, there's change. And that is an ease to suffering. So how do we do that? How do we sit and have the conversations? Part of it, I think, is that we have to allow room for forgiveness in our own selves, for just where we're at, for just being like, I don't know, or I feel guilty, or I feel ashamed, or I'm so frustrated, or this doesn't make sense. But allowing some room for forgiveness, to just be with this is what it is. And, and through the forgiveness, there's a, an opening to compassion for oneself and for others. Gina Sharp says, our ability to forgive allows us to meet suffering. Our suffering as well as the suffering of others with a kind heart. Because then you get to experience or understand or note or pay attention or begin to realize that all life matters and that we're all interconnected. So forgiveness, as you know, is not simple. When we've been harmed, hurt, betrayed, abandoned, abused, 
Oh, you can just fill in the blank for yourself. Forgiveness can seem to be out of the question. And yet, unless we find some way to forgive, we will hold that hatred and fear in our hearts forever. And some of what I experienced over the last few months is, is there room for forgiveness in this, this, these experiences? Is there a place to hold both and? Can I have compassion for the police officers as well as the mother who lost her son? And hold those paradoxes. If every one of us carried every single hurt, every single resentment, all that anger that comes up when we feel betrayed, we'll just keep our hearts closed and never let it go. It'd be unbearable. And then it erupts. Part of what happens with the riots, to me, and what I've seen over the years it's like this pressure cooker. I don't, they don't have pressure cookers too much anymore, but remember where you had them and the smoke would come up and, you know, the food would be ready or the pot would be just bubbling? And if you didn't catch it, this is what happened to me, <laughs> the whole pot went and it's like, whoa. And then it goes everywhere. And that's what it feels like sometimes when there's a lid or there's no understanding or there's no dialogue, is that it just keeps bubbling up until it bursts and then the outcome our people take advantage of situations where there's a peaceful protest and then there's looting and then it gets mixed up and then then an innocent bystander could be harmed anyone can be harmed so what do we do when we don't allow that pressure cooker some release that's the suffering and as Jack Cornfield says, he says, forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. When we begin to work on forgiveness, it's a primarily a practice for ourselves. So we model what we want to be different. And it may not be anything you can see, but an internal process, an internal understanding of, there's room in my heart to understand this. I may not know all the reasons, but I have compassion for the suffering that this person or these people experience. And that means you're no longer isolated by yourself. You're part of the human condition, part of the humanity, and part of the world. When Nelson Mandela walked free out of 27 years of prison, he had such dignity and such mag, magnan, I can't even say this word, magnanimity, <laughs> that word, and graciousness. What you get to see is that we have this capacity in all of us. Everyone has. And Tara Brock says, compassion is our capacity to relate in a tender and sympathetic way to what we perceive. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, to love our enemy is possible, is impossible. 
The moment we understand our enemy, we feel compassion towards him or her, and they are no longer our enemy. So even if we don't understand what caused and who did this, as soon as there is empathy, there's a feeling of, oh my goodness, you're no longer isolated. You can't say you don't have some feeling for that. The humanity of you is now extended to someone else. It could be your brother. It could be your son. It could be your daughter. The suffering is great. How we hold it, how we practice with it, allows us to explore what the end of suffering may be like. Because there's that potential. John Donahue has this poem called For Equilibrium, A Blessing and it's from his book The Bless To Bless the Space Between Us Like the joy of the sea coming home to shore may the relief of laughter rinse through your soul as the wind loves to call things to dance may your gravity by lighten be lightened by grace like the dignity of moonlight restoring the earth may your thoughts incline with reverence and respect as water takes whatever shape it is in so free may you be about who you become as silence smiles on the other side of what's said may your sense of irony bring perspective And as time remains free of all that it frames, may your mind stay clear of all its names. And may your prayer of listening deepen enough to hear in the depths the laughter of God. And I bring poems in because I find sometimes they help express what my words that I'm fumbling over (laughs) gets me tongue-tied. I've been in different circles in the last few weeks in different meetings and people check in and check in about personal life and then check in about the community. And one person said recently, I'm allowing the range of emotions just to go through me. Sometimes I feel sad. Sometimes I feel hopeful. And sometimes I don't know what I feel. And just to hold that. And for a while, I just imagined or wished that there was a wailing wall where you could just go to and just cry for the sorrow and the suffering in the world. Because it just felt so much. And maybe that's part of what needs to happen too. As a way to release and shift some of what we carry. Even if we don't have a language for it. We have feelings for what we have, what's going on. 
And that can be, a, that can feel like it's suffering and you can't get out of it. And yet, there's a way when you have some form of release, there's an ease. And in that ease, there's moments, I think, of liberation. Because it shifts how you're holding yourself. It shifts the perspective of how you understood something. And then it's like, oh, let me think of this too. And this too. So the, the, these recent events are painful to watch and listen and to even be in dialogues with some people. And yet the outcome is offering the potential for change to happen. And that could be in some ways considering the end of suffering, but it can also be a sense of potential joy of what's possible and that's hopeful and yet as long as I've been around a few I was going to say centuries but I meant decades (laughs) (laughs) and what I know historically is that it takes a long time for change to happen a long time and it feels very, the incre- the very little steps, very incremental, as if to say, hurry up and slow down, or hurry up and come along, and what's changed? And yet, there's been change. And so that's hopeful. And it reminds me that all life is impermanent. And it's hard to, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. This is not going to last. This is going to change. Yet the seeds of how one understands and and explores racism in this country has the potential for change. And dropping those seeds and planting them and cultivating them in a different way than it has been in the past is hopeful. It doesn't feel like it all the time. But I believe it's hopeful. So therein is the suffering and then there is the potential for the end of suffering. And then the cynical part of me is like, yeah, right. (laughs) You know? Like, right, okay. Sometimes you eat the bear, sometimes the bear eats you. And it's like, yeah, whatever. But I hold out for that. I know if anything the teachings of the Buddha have taught me is that is everything is impermanent and everything is open to change. So I really don't have much more to say. I appreciate that you all came out this evening and that we're all diehards let's see if there's anything left maybe this last thing on kindness and then I'd like to just open it up and we can just have a dialogue a question was asked to Jack Cornfield 
What's the most important quality for people to bring to their meditation practice? And he said, kindness towards yourself. It's about compassion. A better word is constancy, a willingness to show up in a kind way and to be curious. If you have the the curiosity to notice anger or fear, you can say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what it'd be like to understand it more deeply. And I wonder too that with all of that's been going on, what would happen if we explored it a little more deeply and said, well, what does this mean? What does it mean personally? What does it mean in the community? What does it mean in relationship to people in my life? It's definitely brought out a lot more conversations, even if you don't have answers. And are you willing to have those? I don't want to say they're difficult because we don't talk about them all the time, at least in some communities they're not talked about all the time. I mean, talk about it all the time in my community. But in other communities it may not necessarily be true. And it, be, it can be for a myriad reasons, like one, it's not interesting. Two, I don't know what to say. It's not related to my life. It's not about my life. It doesn't affect me. Why should I even have this conversation? It, all those things are true. And yet, what would it be if you unpacked that and looked at what's really here? What is really here? And explore that and take those risks. So maybe we'll have a little bit of that kind of a conversation. And we'll hold it with kindness and care for each other. So thank you. Anyone care to ask a question or have a comment or share? Yes? Okay. And thank you for coming out. (laughs) Uh, You called us diehards. Maybe we could form a club, Diehards for the Dharma. Something. Oh, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Come rain or shine, we'll be here. <laughs> um, my sense is that we uh, all have to get out of our middle class bubble. Uh, so. Um, I mean, I've always thought of myself as not racist with, uh, you know, good attitudes and values. Uh, But uh, fairly recently I realized uh, all along that was very much an intellectual Mm -hmm. kind of surface level um, way of being non-racist. Uh, then uh, a couple years ago, I st- uh, some nuns in San Francisco, uh, they've moved out to Placerville, Placerville mm-hmm. now, but when they were in San Francisco, they started uh, uh, going to um, downtown San Francisco, uh, 
and organizing people to bring food to feed to the homeless. Mm. So Market Street, Sixth Street, ten to one, and um, and uh, I guess the people that we oh, identified as down and out, and would you like a sandwich and some coffee on Sunday morning? Uh, were about you know they were African Americans and Caucasians, um, and uh, and it's just an amazing experience really a different experience I've ever had you know to really meet people who are living in very different circumstances very very different circumstances than, than I've ever known mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know so many of them are very uh, very quietly poised and self-possessed and and uh and show a lot of gratitude with a lot of intelligence. And then about a year and a half ago, I started, I joined a group, so we we go to a, a prison to teach meditation, Buddhist meditation. And, um, and there the racial makeup is a really even mix of, of all of the races. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and And those guys are really great they're really amazing some of them get so much stiller it looks like than I do during the meditation period uh, I don't know maybe they have more incentive the time to practice I don't know um, so uh, you know I feel like you know, I've become more colorblind much much more than I ever had been before so that's that's what I have to say just getting out Mm-hmm. And uh, out of our bubble, mixing with the world. Thank you. What happens when we meet our edge? What happens when we go there and we take a moment or take time and just say, what's really going on here? And be with whatever arises. That can be very powerful learning even if we don't understand it all? Are we willing to go to our edge and be with it? And what I hear you say is that you got to experience compassion in a very different kind of way. So thank you. Well, when you mentioned the cynic in you, yeah, right, um, that spoke to me because... It just feels like this has gone on for so long. Mm. I don't see change. Mm. I don't see the kinds of change that we're really hoping to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in Miami. I grew up there. I recall the Arthur McDuffie, um, the, the, you know, the injustice there and the riots. Um, and this just seems like redux. I mean, this seems yeah. like all over again. I don't see what's changed. And so it's really hard for for me to be optimistic and mm. for me to see what, you know, what kinds of conversations are happening and how that is changing the fabric of, of our society. So I just wanted, you know, maybe some concrete understanding from you of what kinds of changes you see. I, um, thank you. Because <laughs> I sit with that a lot more than I sit with anything else. 
And so then it's like, well, this is my experience, this is my reality. And yet if I don't allow myself to have the belief and the hope of something different, then this is where I stay. And that's not okay. I think about future generations. I think about my niece who's five and my grandson who's 16. And I have to, it's important to offer them something else besides my cynicism. (laughs) Because they have to live their life and they are of a different world. And I want them to believe and hope that it's possible for something different. So history tells us that change usually happens as a result of violence. And it's painful because so many lives are lost and yet change happens. And then, then we have people like Martin Luther King who made a choice through his own actions of nonviolence to have action. And then we have Nelson Mandela and we have Aung San Suu Kyi and what she's done and the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh. And we have these models, let's say, in the midst of the deepest suffering, there is the potential for freedom. And that's what I hold. So I can't give you concrete examples, but that's what I hold in my heart. And as a bodhisattva, that's what I believe. And yet, I'm cynical. (laughs) So that's the paradox. So thank you for that. Might as well just pass it around. (laughs) You're welcome to speak if you like. So when I hear news reports about Ferguson in New York, like I can barely listen to them because it it makes me so sad and emotional to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I feel connected to what's going on there in that way. Um, But at the same time, uh, I grew up in Palo Alto. I I live in Palo Alto. I, I work at a tech company that's about 100 people, been around for three years, and there's only a handful of non-white employees. I don't know that we've ever even interviewed someone who's African American. Mm. So I feel really ignorant and Mm -hmm. detached from any conversation I could be having about this topic. It doesn't Mm -hmm. come up in my (laughs) daily life. And it's, I don't know, it's, I'm, I'm glad that this is what we're talking about tonight, but I, just don't, I don't even know how to begin to participate yeah. in the conversation. I, I want to bow to you and say thank you because even though you say you don't know how to participate, you have. And that the, the feelings that you bring, even with it not coming from a place of clarity, is a place of care and sadness. I mean... Sometimes I can't speak because all I want to do is cry. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, come on now, you've been around a long time and you've got, you know a whole lot and all you want to do is cry. And I'm like, pretty much. And, it's, and I realize that part of what it is is that I'm not just crying for myself or feeling sad for myself. I experience that this is the, 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 the tears of the suffering of the world. 
and one of the ways that I have learned to handle it because I can be so overwhelmed with emotions that I get like deer and headlights that I can't do a thing. So I have learned to lean in a little bit just to allow myself to have a little bit of it. And then I lean out. And the leaning out is a way of taking care of myself. So that's where the kindness might come in. It's like, oh, this is a whole lot. And it's okay. This is all I can take for now. Oh, I really don't know what's going on, but this is what I feel. Oh, this is so much. Well, let me just be with it as much as I can. Okay, let me lean out. And what you're doing is bringing wisdom and discernment to how you're holding suffering. And sometimes we don't know how we feel. And that's okay too. To be with the willingness just to be with what is, is liberation. Because we're not trying to deny or pretend that it's not there. So I want to honor that place in you. And invite you not to be so hard on yourself. A little kindness goes a long way. So thank you. I'm glad we're talking about this. Um, <clears throat> I have been um, trying to be with, I'm totally going to cry, but oh well, um, with what's been happening as well. And um, I think one of the things that's been happening for me is um, trying to um, be with it is really hard. And um, but I think it's an incredible practice because um, for a long time, the last couple of years, for various reasons, these kinds of events, I just couldn't, I didn't have the capacity to deal with them. <laughs> so I feel like that's changing. And I can't, I can't always watch the videos. Those are pretty hard. Yeah. But I can read about it. And... Um, um, try to go to different commentary and stuff. So I've been letting that happen, and um, part of what gives me hope is um, is that uh, there are these um, people protesting in Berkeley and in New York, <laughs> and it's been every night. I don't know what's happening tonight. And um, if I were younger, I'd probably be doing that <laughs> but I'm like hanging out with my daughter and doing other things um, uh, and I've thought about it but I, I you know we'll have to see if I can do that but um, I think I've been really um, moved by those protests and I think what, what I think what I keep coming back to in all of this especially about New York following Ferguson is um, that, of course, we should have these responses. Of course, we should be feeling sadness and rage, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this if this were happening to 16-year-old, six-foot-something white teenagers, you know, the whole country would be out in the street. So I feel like, of course, we 
need to be having these feelings. And um, so I guess as I sort of like flail around (laughs) with these feelings and try to accept that, you know, it's okay to have the reactions I'm having and what what will those lead to? Um, my my one little attempt at trying to take action <laughs> came from one of those articles on Facebook that everybody get everybody gets, and um, you know, for white folks, there's been these great articles going around like things white folks can do to respond, mm-hmm. and so I ordered the new Jim Crow, <coughs> this book, and um, you know I'm reading it and. Um, it's about institutional racism. It's about um, it's about um, how prison um, has become the new uh, oppressor of the of Black America, and <clears throat> it's really, really good, mm-hmm. and it's really, really smart, and it's really, really well researched. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gives me like a little bit of something to hold on to as a person who um, might be in a position to turn to another, probably another white person, and maybe to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of my, that's what I'm doing. But, um, but, you know, I mean, I just, I've just barely, I think today, I just want to share this because it was so powerful got on this Twitter feed that had to do with um, a protest of uh, black folks in Piedmont and Rockridge, mm-hmm. like affluent part of Oakland. And they went, they went around on Sunday morning and they interrupted people having brunch. Talk about Palo Alto and feeling like you're in a bubble. <laughs> they went around beautiful Rock Ridge in Piedmont and they had a like a sorry to interrupt your brunch protest and they the hashtag was like it's a black brunch or something and they read poetry revolutionary poetry and they sang (laughs) and they had pictures because Twitter's like that you have like pictures and quotes and it's so cool and I was like I've got to get on these Twitter feeds more often because (laughs) I totally cried. It was so inspiring. There were these like amazing folks marching around Piedmont and going into Crepevine and occupying Crepevine and talking to the people at brunch. <laughs> and it doesn't seem so um, <laughs> such a big deal, but it kind of is. Because <laughs> it just feels like, hey, everybody's part of this conversation, even... Whoever's at brunch in, in Oakland, you know, you you know. So, those are my ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's interesting what these horrific incidents have spurred, and for that, I'm grateful. This dialogue, when, when Obama became president, or right before he did, and it was between Hillary and Obama or whatever, there was so much conversation around race. And it's like, okay, here's something else. What is, what is going on? 
what is going on for all of us and where can we meet and have dialogue and change maybe it's the grapevine I don't know (laughs) I think that's pretty courageous and different people take different tactics you know it's like in the Eightfold Path we talk about wise intention wise effort and wise action and I don't necessarily think that sometimes how people do things are the wisest action but it comes from such an honorable intention so then when we look at the intention and the outcome then it's about when it gets to the outcome is this the wisest intervention is this using discernment and it, it's, it's a conversation to continue to have. Uh, I, I'm hopeful. Did you want to say something, Marie, please? This shifted my look at this whole thing a little bit because the way I'd been looking at it was the pain of that 16-year-old could be my grandchild. Right. It's like... Oh no, you're in this situation, you got killed. Right. And this terrified guy did something monumentally asinine and killed this kid. Right. And he's got to live with that the rest of his life. And, and I sort of got stuck in that position of here you have two things you can't resolve. It's like, oh, these are horrible, sad things that this kid got himself in this situation where he got killed and this guy did it Mm. and he could be my son Mm -hmm. and and I thought well what's with all this rioting and stuff like that and it's it's paying attention it's look at this 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 you know so that if people do have action even if it's, it, it's, it's delightful as going to the grapevine and talking to people, you real, there, it really does something. Because it doesn't let it just be a heartache. It brings it up again and again and again. If people march, if people, you know, knock in the windows of the Starbucks or whatever is going on, at least people are looking at what happened. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they didn't look at it very closely the first time, they'll look at it again. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes the heartache makes immobilizes us to do anything. There's a lesson here for all of us. What is our edges? What are we willing to move forward through? What are we willing to look at? And can we accept that even in our helplessness that it's okay? Is it okay? Is it okay to be confused? Is it okay just to be filled with heartache? Is it okay to be with where you are right now in this moment? That is our practice as well. Not to change that. Not to I mean not to change it. Not to want it to be something it's not. This is where I'm at in this moment. So I can hold cynicism, I can hold heartache, I can hold potential for change, I can hold confusion, I can hold compassion, and know that this is all there, and more. 
without trying to do anything about that. This is what it is now. And in the next moment, it's this, and this, and this too. And I think that those are the ways that we begin to unfold and discover and unpack. And there's room for liberation with that and, li- and healing. So thank you. Thank you for your sharing and your willingness to just step in. This is our practice. This is freedom. Thank you. So let's just do a dedication of merit. You can just be comfortable. You don't have to do much moving around. We dedicate the merit of our practice and our actions and our willingness to be with whatever arises to the liberation and healing of all beings in all directions without exception. May all beings live with ease and well-being. May all beings love and be loved. And may all beings be free from suffering and its causes and conditions. Thank you very much.